All right, thanks, Pastor Dave. Good morning. Welcome to everybody here. Maybe you're watching through the screen. Uh, thank you for worshiping together with us. Um, as Pastor Dave said, we're going to get into the words. I want to ask you to get your Bible ready. Ephesians chapter 6 is where we're going to be. Maybe you have your apps. Open it up to Ephesians chapter 6. You know, in uh, World War One, the Bible Society distributed over 9 million Bibles to servicemen who fought in World War I, part of the British Armed Forces. And every British serviceman was issued a uniform, a helmet, boots, and a Bible. And the hope was that by giving these soldiers a Bible, it would provide them comfort and peace and hope as they're fighting on the field. But who knew that the Bible would actually save so many lives? Lives like that of Leonard Knight. Leonard Knight was only 17 years old when he was called to fight in World War I. And he had taken the Bible with him everywhere he went. And even on that day when they were under attack, he was shot at by the German enemy. And he was hit in the chest where he kept his Bible. And it hit him right in the Bible, and the story says that it saved his life. That bullet stopped just 50 pages short of penetrating Leonard Knight's heart. Maybe you've heard of George Vinali. George Vinali is another soldier who fought in World War I. He was on the trenches there on the Western Front, and he too was ambushed. He was shot at at least four times, each one missing him, except he was then hit by that final bullet. And that bullet too hit George in the pocket right where he kept his Bible. He sent that Bible to his family and showed that the bullet had stopped right at Isaiah 49 verse 8, which says, God is saying, I will preserve thee. That happened so many times, apparently, that by World War II, the Bible Society put out these Bibles called the Heart Shield Bibles. Here's a Heart Shield Bible where they started making it out of steel, pocket size, small enough to put into your pocket right over your heart in hopes that it might save more lives. So I want to encourage every person here, every brother and sister, make sure you take your Bible with you everywhere. Stuff it in your chest pocket because it might save your life, right? No, this, there's nothing about this book that will save your life except everything written in it. For in it we find every piece of the armor of God. We've been in this series called God versus Satan. We've been talking about this cosmic battle between good and evil, light and darkness. And last week, Pastor Gary talked about how we need to resist the devil. And James says that the devil will then flee from you. And I want to continue that thought of resisting the devil. And one way we do it is by putting on the armor of God. So today, I turn you to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to cover four of those pieces. Next week, we'll come back, and I'll finish it off and give you the rest of the armor. But turn there with me now. And before we read, I want to ask that we just pause and let's pray and ask the Lord to open our hearts to his word. Okay, would you guys join me in a word of prayer? Well, Father God, we just really pray that as we open up your word, that you would open up our hearts. God, that you would just get us ready for what you want to pour into us. And God, I pray that you would give us all the equipment we need 
to stand against the attacks of the enemy. God, help us to know what those pieces of armor are, what they look like, what they mean, and how we can use them for battle. And God, again, I pray as we get into this time that you would protect our minds. God, help us to, you know, refrain from just wandering off into thoughts that are not of you. Help us to uh, refrain from the temptation to just get lost on our phones, get lost in thoughts about the day or yesterday or tomorrow. Bring us in, God. Draw us close to you. Draw us into your heart and speak. Lord, we, we trust you. We give you our hearts and our minds. We give you our lives, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So here we are in Ephesians 6, and uh, i got to give you some context to this passage we're about to read. Paul is in prison, and he's writing to the church in Ephesus, to the Christians there in, in Ephesus, and it was common that a prisoner like Paul would be chained to a Roman guard who would keep watch over the prisoner. And I imagine as Paul is writing this letter chained up, he's got before him this visual, this illustration, this inspiration for what he now wants to say to the Christians as they enter into spiritual battle. As if he's looking at the soldier's armor and he's being encouraged on how the Christians should be dressed as they enter into spiritual battle. I just imagine him looking at the soldier and then writing in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the, the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. Everyone say stand. A little bit louder, say Stand that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand. Everybody say withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Everyone say stand one more time to stand firm. Paul's talking about demonic forces who have been spread out throughout the heavenly realms, throughout the earth, to help carry out the schemes of their chief commander, the schemes of Satan. And I always like to summarize the, the schemes of the devil as the de-evils of the devil. There's so many of them. The devil uses de-evils like doubt or discouragement. He might use distraction or deception. He might use delusion of the truth or division of the body. And the list goes on and on and on of the things that Satan does, the ways he tries to get us to fall. But as many as there are these schemes of Satan, we have the armor of God to help us to resist and to stand against the enemy's attacks. And so he talks about the spiritual battle and he sees this soldier and he continues to write, okay, so stand therefore, verse 14, stand therefore having fastened on that belt of truth. If you're taking notes, write this down for number one, the first piece of the armor, put on the belt of truth because the devil dilutes. For one, he dilutes the truth. 
A Kansas City lady was awarded by a jury $2.2 billion. $2.2 billion when her pharmacist, his name was Robert Courtney, he admitted and pled guilty to diluting her chemotherapy drugs in order to make a profit. In fact, he admitted it came out that he tampered with 98,000 prescriptions of chemotherapy drugs, which affected at least 4,200 cancer patients. Hundreds of them were believed to have passed away, maybe even thousands, because they didn't get the proper chemotherapy treatment that they needed to prolong their life. $2.2 billion was awarded to Georgia Hayes because she got diluted medication. It's a lot. But $2.2 billion profits you very little when you don't have long to live. She ended up passing away just a few years later. Robert Courtney got sentenced to 30 years behind bars. He profited $19 million at the benefit of others to build this profit from this fraud. The devil will try to dilute the truth in in an attempt to rob us of eternal life. When Robert Courtney diluted her medicine, he was robbing her of life. And I believe the devil wants to do the same when he dilutes the truth that we so need. He will rob us of life. He will dilute the truth through our culture, through the world around us. And so he'll, in our culture, tell us that Love is not what we believe it to be. He'll dilute the truth about love and say, hey, listen, you could marry whoever you want. Doesn't matter what gender. Doesn't matter what God says. You just marry whoever you want. That's love. And if it were anyone were to speak up otherwise, that's considered hate. He'll dilute the truth about morality and say right and wrong is relative. It's up to you. Whatever your heart believes is right and wrong, that, that, that's you. You do you. He'll dilute the truth about acceptance and say, listen, you could be whatever you want to be. You could be whatever gender you say you are. You, whatever you think, it doesn't matter what God says about you or how God created you. You just be you. And to speak up otherwise against such a thought, it would be considered intolerant, bigoted, hateful. He'll dilute the truth about salvation and he'll say, hey, listen, there are many ways to heaven. There are many ways to get there. Jesus is not the only way. Just be a good person. There are many ways and all roads lead to the same place. And we have to beware the schemes of Satan because the dilution of the truth may not kill you right away, but it can lead to ultimate death. And he'll dilute the truth not just through culture, but even through the church. The truth is getting watered down in the church and a temptation that many churches face is this idea that we will grow and we can get more people if we just water down the truth. If we just avoid talking about certain topics, avoid certain things that the Bible says, then maybe it will be more palatable and more PC for the people. And I pray that this church 
in every church in this community, in every church that represents the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we would grow, that the kingdom would grow only because we're getting better and better at breaking down the hard truths and making it understandable rather than growing because we're watering down the hard truths to make it more palatable. That we would be concerned about holding up the truth of God and we pray that that would build the kingdom. And so church, may we buckle the belt of truth. May we equip with this belt that God has given us. You know, for the, the Roman soldier, the belt was a piece of equipment that served many purposes. It had leather straps hanging in the front with metal woven into it to protect the, the, the man and his organs. It had a, a holder, a sheath for his sword so that he would have his sword on him at all times. But more importantly than these functions, there was a function that made the belt so crucial to the soldier on the battlefield. It would allow him to be prepared and ready to fight at any moment, to move swiftly into action. How do I know that? How do I know that? Well, because in the original language that this was written in, it actually doesn't say, put on the belt of truth. That's just an English translation, so we would understand that in this day and age. The original language actually says, Gird up the loins of truth. It says, therefore, stand firm with, the, with your loins girded with truth. Now, what in the world does that mean? How many guys in here knows what it means to gird up your loins? Anybody? That's what I thought. Thank God you don't know what that means. That would be weird if you knew how to gird up your loins. I didn't either, but thank God for Google. Because Google helped me understand how to gird up your legs. I found this illustration from a website called The Art of Manliness. And this teaches you in six steps how to gird up your loins. Um, by the way, this is not just a cute cartoon. I actually looked up some sources, some commentaries, and this is actually historically accurate. This is really how you gird up your loins. Basically, in that day... Guys would have long robes or tunics that often went past your knees, sometimes as far, as, down, or as far down as your ankles. And so how many of you guys have had to run in a dress and you know how hard it is to run in a dress, right? Yeah, only girls are raising their hands, right? That's right, because you get tripped up and tangled. And so what you would do to gird up your loins is you would swing the loose ends of your garments through your legs, you would tie it around your thighs, and then you would take that remaining piece and you would tuck it into your belt, also known as your girdle. And with your legs freed up, when battle is going on, you can now run into battle untangled and undistracted. And so when Paul is saying, gird up your loins, this is what he's talking about. You're welcome, guys. If you need this thing, I'll go ahead and email it to you so you can use for future reference. But that's what he means. And what Paul is saying, listen, put on your belt of truth. Gird up your loins. However you want to say it, be ready with the truth in season and out of season. Know what this says. Read it. Study it. Meditate upon it. Why? Because the day of evil will come where Satan will come with a distorted and diluted truth, I believe. 
And we must be ready to be able to call it out and not be shaken and not be knocked over because we're able to detect it immediately. Hey, hold on, that's not true. So put on the belt of truth. Then he goes on. And then he says, and not just about the truth, but also having put on, in verse 14, the breastplate of righteousness. Write this down for number two. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Why? Because the devil defiles. For one, he defiles. He's going to try to taint the righteous heart. A a, a Roman breastplate was often made of bronze, kind of like this. And it was there to protect the soldier of, of, of his vital organs, especially his heart. And so you would put on a breastplate of righteousness. You would, you would protect your heart. You know, in this series, just a couple weeks ago, we talked about how as Christ followers, Christ reigns in our heart. And if Christ reigns in your heart, then it is ruled by righteousness. He wants to fill it with more and more righteousness. But we also talked about how Satan is going for the throne. He wants to dethrone Christ. And he wants to take command, and he wants to fill it with sinfulness. I love how Proverbs 4, verse 23, gives us great wisdom. And it says in verse 23, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Satan wants to defile and desecrate this holy place. He wants to desecrate this holy heart. And so he's going for the throne. Just recently, I um, got to share with the young adults, and I, I, I gave an illustration. I had a coffee mug, and I had a can of Diet Coke, and I started pouring the Diet Coke into the coffee mug. And I said to them, hey, what's in this cup? And you would think it's a trick question, but it's not a trick question. What's in the cup? Diet Coke is in the cup. Why? Because that's what I just put in there. That's what's in there. What you put in there is what's there. And then I said, what happens when I start shaking this cup? What if I bang it up against a wall? What what, what if I frustrate the cup? What happens? What comes out? Diet Coke. Why? Because Diet Coke was in the cup. What I put in is what's in there. What I shake out of it is what comes out. And in the same way, what we put in the heart is what is found there. And when we go through life and we, we're shooken up or we hit a bump in the road or, or we, we face temptation, what's going to come out? What's in your heart? That's what's coming out. So my question is, what is in your heart? Is it righteousness and holiness or is it sinfulness? If I were to write this passage in a modern day translation, I would say the same thing. Hey, listen, friends, put on the chest protector of righteousness or put on the bulletproof vest of righteousness and guard your heart. In fact, I would add to that if I could. I would also say, and also put on the goggles of righteousness and put on the earplugs of righteousness. Why? Because the eyes and the ears are the gateways into the heart. What you read and what you see, what you watch and what you view, what you listen to and what you hear, all of that is what is going to be found in the heart. And so guard your hearts by guarding your eyes 
and guarding your ears. Jesus taught that. Luke 11, verse 34, he said this. He says, when your eyes are healthy, your whole body is also full of light. That's goodness, that's purity. But when they are unhealthy, your body is also full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. So Jesus is saying your eyes, what you see, what you look at matters because it could fill you with light or it could fill you with darkness. So I want to challenge everyone listening. The same way I challenged our young adults just recently. Guard your heart. Let's get our guards up. Because I feel like in this day and age, in our culture, too many Christians, we are letting our guards down. I'm speaking to me. I'm, I'm speaking to you too. Let's be serious about holiness again. Let's be serious about righteousness and let's protect our hearts. Keep Satan from filling it with unrighteousness because he's so subtle in his scheme to get us comfortable with sin that defiles the righteous heart, right? For example, if I were to stand here and on this Sunday morning, 11 a.m. service, and I'm preaching and I come here with a new message, I, go, I say, guys, I got, a new, I got new news for you guys. It is now okay to commit adultery. Go ahead. If there's somebody more pleasing other than your spouse, just go for them. It's all right. And you can let your spouse know because it's okay. God's good with it. Or, or if I say to, to, to you who are dating boyfriends, girlfriends, go ahead and get to know each other really well. Go ahead and sleep together. Premarital sex is okay. Get to know each other really well. And if you need help, just get drunk a little bit. It'll loosen you up. It'll get you relaxed. Get high. That'll help, help the experience. If I were to preach that on a Sunday morning, what would you do? You're out of here, Right? Like, you're canceling me out. You're, you're, you're going to stone me. You're going to throw tomatoes, and you'd be like, heretic. That guy's a lunatic. He's diluting the truth. What is he talking about from behind the pulpit? Many of you guys would have nothing do, to do with such teaching at church on a Sunday morning. But put some good music to that, right? Put a good beat to that. And how many of us are now cranking it up in our cars, and we're singing at the top of our lungs because I like this music or I'll pay money to go to a concert that glorifies those kind of things. Put it on Netflix, say it's the top 10 movies this week and we're getting our blankets out and, and getting a tub of popcorn. I'll watch that, put it in a series, eight episodes and I'm drawn to that. Beware of the schemes of Satan. How subtly he works to compromise the righteous heart. Guard your hearts. Let me show you how quickly hearts can change. And you know, many years ago, my, my friends and I, we were walking in uh, a plaza here in Torrance, and um, there's a little mom and pop shop. It was a Taiwanese cafe. It's not there anymore. It's called Old Country Cafe, and some of you guys might know that place. But I remember my friends and I, we weren't eating there, but we were walking by, and as we were walking by, I was like punched in the face by this smell that was coming from that restaurant. And like, I kid you not, I'm like, why hasn't the business owner fixed the toilet? 
Like obviously their toilet is plugged up, it's clogged or something. There's some major problem with the sewage and, and it's coming out. I, I don't even smell well. I don't have a good sense of smell, but I can smell from a parking lot. And I'm like, they better fix that because that's repulsive. On a future date, my friends and I were at the same plaza. I'm walking by the same restaurant. Boom, punches me in the gin in the face. I'm like, why didn't they fix that? They're gonna lose their business. That's bad business. That's gonna drive customers away. And then what I found out not too long after that from some Taiwanese friends is that what was coming out of that restaurant, that smell, was not driving people away, it was drawing people in. Like they have a dish that literally is translated stinky tofu. Like that's what it's called. They ferment this tofu and it smells literally, I'm sorry, but like dung. Like that's what it smells like. And people eat this stuff. And, and so I was with some people who, who, who were going for it. They're going to try this stinky tofu. I'm with them. I decide I'm going to take a bite. And so I take a bite of the stinky tofu. And like, it tastes like it smells. Why does it taste like that? That's, disgust, that's inhumane. Why would you make something like this and call it food? Time goes on. Some people I'm with are eating stinky tofu. Yeah, I can't believe you're eating that. They're like, try some. I'm like, no. They're like, try some. I'm like, okay. And so I take a bite. And it still tastes the same. But at least this time, I'm not spitting it out. I actually swallow it this time. I, it's, I, at least I could swallow it. On a future date, this is true story. I'm eating with some friends. They got the stinky tofu again. And I go, let me get some. And, and I eat it, and I'm like, it's actually not that bad, you know. It's actually not that bad. I, I can see how it's an acquired taste. It's not that bad. And then later on, I eat some more. I eat it, and I'm like, I like this stuff. I actually like this stuff. And you could ask my wife, this day, I crave stinky tofu. Like, I love this. There are dinners when it's supposed to be a side dish. I make it my main meal. Give me three servings, and I'll eat it as my main meal with the cabbage and the kimchi, and I'm devouring this stuff. We'll go visit Taiwan to see my wife's family. First thing off the plane, I'm like, Monica, where's the stinkiest tofu we can find? I'm smelling it because you can smell from blocks away. That stuff is pungent, but give it to me because I want it. I want it. And I ask myself, how in the world did that happen? This stuff that was once repulsive, that I didn't want in me, has become something that I now crave on certain days. How did that happen? Very subtly. A little bite today can become a craving tomorrow. A little sin today can be an addiction tomorrow. A righteous heart today can be found defiled tomorrow. Beware the schemes of Satan to defile the righteous heart. And so, church, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Guard your hearts. Let's be serious about holiness. Let's be serious about 
righteousness. And so we put on the belt of truth. We put on the breastplate of righteousness. And then he goes on, and looking at the soldier, I imagine he sees the shoes. And in verse 15, he says, and, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Write this down for the third piece of the armor. Number three, put on shoes of peace because the devil, for one, he divides. Put on the shoes of peace because the devil divides. A couple weeks ago, uh, if you remember, if you were here, I talked about preachers with sneakers. You guys remember that? That Instagram account where preachers are showing up to church preaching with these hot sneakers on, thousands of dollars, $6,000 Yeezys, right? Well, this preacher this morning got a hold of some of the hottest sneakers that I could find. And these aren't the Jordans, and these aren't the Yeezys, but these are the Masons, the Annie Masons. You heard of them? Annie Mason is the leader of our evangelism ministry here at the church. It's called Lifeguard Ministry. And Annie is one of the greatest evangelists I know. There's a handful of my friends who just go anywhere and they can't stop talking about Jesus. Whether you're at Marshall's or the pier or the park, Annie is going and she's bringing it. She's bringing good news to whoever she talks to. And one year, the, the Lifeguard Evangelism Ministry, we, we got money together, and we got her a gift card to buy some new sneakers. Because I'm reminded of Romans chapter 10 that says, how beautiful are the feet of the one who brings good news. Annie, you got some beautiful feet. Keep, keep moving. And as beautiful as these shoes are, when I read Ephesians 6, and it talks about having shoes fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace, I don't know if he's talking about those beautiful shoes, although that's totally biblical. I'm thinking he's thinking footwear more along the line of these shoes. Now, these are my shoes. These are my mountain biking shoes. And mountain biking shoes are not nearly as beautiful as shoes like that. But what makes these stand out apart from every other shoe is not so much its outer appearance, but its soul. Pun intended, its soul. And the sole of a mountain biking shoe is hard and it's stiff by design to, to give good power transfer. So when you have the pedal, it, it transfers a lot of power. But more importantly, it has these beads that are very sticky. And so when you have a mountain bike pedal with, with uh, pins like this, what it does is it allows your foot to be firmly planted on that pedal. So when you're going down mountains and you're going off rocks and ledges and drops, your foot is not losing its position. You're not slipping off, which can cause a very crazy or dangerous crash. You need good souls. And I think that's what Paul is talking about. See, for the Roman soldier back in that day, they would have sandals with, with kind of like cleats, nails or pieces of metal built into the sole of the shoe to give it good traction, not just so that they could advance and run, but also that they can stand firmly planted and not slip or fall while engaging in combat. I thought when I read Ephesians 6 where it says, put on the shoes of the gospel of peace, I've always thought about shoes like, like it talks about in Romans 10, beautiful feet that go to, and proclaim the good news. But when I actually stop and look at the context, what are we talking about in Ephesians 6? 
Remember four times he told us to what? To stand. In the verse 11, he says, stand. Two more times in verse 13, stand. In verse 14, once again, stand on the day of evil. The day of attack, stand your ground. And I believe Paul's telling us, listen, you have the gospel of peace. Let that cause you to stand firmly planted. Why? Because the devil wants to get us, church, to fall. And how is he going to try to get us to fall? Well, one major way he gets a church to fall is through division. Because Satan knows something that Jesus knows. See, Jesus taught this about division in Mark 3, verse 24. He said, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And that's something that the Ephesian church, that must have resonated with them because there were a lot of opportunities for division because of their diversity. There in that church were Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles despised the Jews historically. Jews always considered Gentiles unclean. And yet this gospel of peace that unites man, sinful man with the holy God is the same gospel of peace that brings together Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, together as one in Christ in one spirit, one body. That's what the gospel peace does. And the devil knows that. And he wants to try to divide what's been united so that they will fall. And so listen, when you are at war with someone in the family, with someone in the household of God, when peace has been broken, when rivalries arise, when jealousy fills your heart, when you are at odds with a brother or sister in Christ, listen, you're fighting the wrong battle. You're fighting the wrong battle. For our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the demonic forces of evil that are trying to get the body of Christ to fall. So that doesn't mean that we have to agree with everything another Christian says or another Christian does. Christians can be in the wrong. But listen, we attack false ideas. We attack false teachings. We attack doctrines of demons. We do not attack people of God. We're on the same team. We're, on the, we're in the same army. We walk with each other, point each other to the truth, walk each other toward the cross, walk with Christ. We do that united and we stand. If we as a church have been brought in because we have experienced the grace and the forgiveness of a holy God, how can we be divided because we refuse to show grace and forgiveness with each other? That just means we don't get it. We don't get it. And if we've experienced it and we get it, then it should be demonstrated in how we stand with each other. Because the gospel of peace has covered your sin and united you with the holy God, fight for peace with the people of God. Don't let Satan divide and conquer. So we put on the belt of truth. 
And we put on that breastplate of righteousness and, and we, we get ready with the shoes of peace. And lastly, let me show you one more thing. In verse 16, he goes on. He says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So write this down, the fourth piece of armor for today, the last one. Take up the shield of faith because, why? Because the devil discourages. For one, he wants to discourage our faith, get us to doubt our God. So put up that field of shape, a shield of faith. Now, what is faith? Faith is not just knowing, but faith is believing and trusting what you know. It is, it's to the point where you put your life on it. You, you put your weight on what you know when it matters most. It's when the rubber meets the road. It's not just knowing about God and knowing what his word says. It's saying, I believe it with all my life. And faith is that very thing that's going to defend us and keep us standing when the devil shoots off arrow after arrow after arrow after arrow to get us to fall. So it was a common practice back in ancient warfare for warriors to dip their arrows in pitch and tar, kind of like this, and they would set it on fire and launch it off into the enemy army in hopes that not only will it inflict the person it hits, but also that fire will then light up the field around them. And so according to the Greek historian Thucydides, he said that a lot of times the Roman soldiers would take their shields and it was made of linen and leather, and they would soak it with water before going to the battlefield so that when flaming arrows came, it would not only deflect it, but it also extinguish it so as not to light up the world around them. And so Paul says, put up the shield of faith. And I believe that the devil may launch a barrage of attacks and attempts to discourage you of your faith and get you to doubt your God. So put up your shield of faith. How many of us have ever felt like the attacks just would not stop? They just kept coming. And I'm willing to bet there's some of you sitting here or listening right now. You're in that season right now. It just will not stop. I want to encourage you today. Some of you guys, a few months back, you know my story of uh, that day when my bike, one of my most valued possessions, got stolen. And I share that story with you. I want to share with you the full story because I've never shared the full story. But before that, that morning, I had just finished speaking a week at a week-long camp. It's called Mount Hermon up in Santa Cruz. And going into that week, I had been praying. I had a team of people praying that God would protect us, keep us from spiritual warfare, that, that God would use the messages to minister to people. And so we went through that entire week, and by the end of the week, I was just so thankful to God. I was praising God. It was an amazing week of, of ministry and also being fed myself spiritually. And we had such a good time, and so after that camp was done, my family, we went to Monterey just to spend two nights just to rest and relax and recuperate from the week of ministry. So we get to Monterey, and, and that night in the hotel, I was so excited because in Monterey, there's a mountain biking trail that I've been wanting to try. I've watched videos on it. I've studied it. So that night, I was doing more research, just trying to be ready for the next day. And then I went to bed. 
And that next morning, at 6 a.m., I wake up, I open my eyes, and literally the first thing on my heart is just praise. Thanksgiving. I said, God, I'm thinking, I'm like high off of that week at Mount Hermon. I'm, I'm like, God, that was an amazing week. Like, you're so good. You answered our prayers. You, you, you showed up. Like, there was no spiritual warfare, no spiritual attacks. No one got hurt. No one got sick. No one was fighting. None of my kids were complaining. The messages went forth. It seemed like people were receiving them well. It was like, God, that was like a perfect week. And I was just so thrilled, and I, I'm just thanking God. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I get up out of bed. I get ready for the day. I'm about to, I gear up in, in my, my clothes and my gear to go hit this trail. So I'm walking to my car, and that's when I told you guys, my heart is like ripped out of my chest. Because that's when I discovered two steel cable locks that had been cut through, and my bike, which is the next most valuable thing after my car, got jacked. And those of you guys who are avid cyclists or bikers, you know how painful and costly that is. Well, that's what happened with my bike. But later that day, I, you know, I spent the morning on the phone with the police and everything. And then we had our plan for, for the weekend in Monterey. So we went to the aquarium like we planned. And then we went to this playground, the Dennis the Menace playground. Some of you guys know that, that park in Monterey. And we're playing there. And my son, 11-year-old son, Evan, he's on the the monkey bars and he's swinging and then he slips off the bar and he land, he falls a few feet and lands face plants on the ground right not not sand not grass on the ground and his face hits it and he he usually doesn't cry he tries not to scream in public because that's embarrassing for an 11 year old unless it really hurts and he's screaming and i and we, we get him up we finally get him to shake it off and we leave the park, the playground. And, and just a bit after that, a couple hours later, it's time for dinner. And so I was gonna leave the hotel to pick up some food, so I took the kids with me. And my daughter, Karis, eight years old, she, she has a favorite food. It's a particular chili from a certain fast food restaurant. And so I drove to that fast food restaurant, ordered her her chili, some other food for kids, and then we went to another restaurant where I left the kids in the car, I run in to order the rest of our, of our dinner, and then I run back to the car to check on my kids to make sure they're okay. And I'll never forget what it was like when I opened that back door to my daughter, Kara, screaming at the top of her lungs. Just tears, and she's just excruciating pain. She's screaming, and I look on her lap, and there's a bunch of chili that, when she took out of the bag, spilled all over her lap. And with tears in my son's eye, they had to rip her pants off. She's still sitting there in her seatbelt, chilly on her lap, and skin just falling off of her thighs. It was that hot, it burned through her pants and burned off her skin. We took her to urgent care, and urgent care doctor said, it looks like third-degree burns. After that, that night, my son kept repeating over and over again, Dad, why are all these bad things happening to us? He's like, this is the worst day ever. Dad, why do these bad things keep happening to us? This is the worst day ever. And I couldn't help but to think back that that day started off with me praising God, giving thanks because you are so good and you are so faithful. 
And I couldn't help but to wonder throughout that day if there were fiery arrows being fired off by the enemy to get us to discourage, to be discouraged in our faith and really doubt, is, is God really that good? Is your God really that good? As if you're trying to rob us of this joy that filled our hearts. That was a day. That was just a day. Perhaps you've had days like that, maybe kind of like Jesus on that day when he was in the desert and time and time and time again, the devil kept attacking him with these temptations, would not let up. But I realize that some of you have endured a prolonged season of suffering. And maybe you're still in that season now. And you've wondered, God, when will this stop? Maybe like Job, you've taken hits to your property and to your possessions, hits to your family, to your kids, to your spouse, to your reputation, and it just won't stop. I want to encourage you, take up the shield of faith. Do not let it down. I thank God that 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 day, I felt like the Spirit of God gave me a shield of faith because as I went through that day there in Monterey, it's like everything that, that we just taught about this past week was coming to life. Everything the other pastor spoke of, Pastor John, all his messages in me were now being met with the test that was coming to life. Yes, I believe in the resurrection life. I believe in the blessed life. And it was like the Spirit of God saying, do you believe everything you just told all those people? Do you believe that God is good? that God is in control, that there are spiritual blessings available that does not change even in spite of your circumstances. Do you believe that? It's like God was saying, I know you know, you just told all these people, do you believe it? And I had to say, God, I believe it. With all my heart, in faith, I believe it. Brothers and sisters, put up that shield of faith. Trust with all your heart what God says in his word. Do not put it down because Satan will hurl things at us in life to try to discourage your hearts and make you doubt your God. And as soon as one arrow is deflected, keep it up because another arrow might be on its way. By the way, do you know how to hold the shield? Do you know how to hold it? Not, not so much like this. Basically what you do is you take your hands and you hold it like this. And in faith, you say, God, you are still God. God, you're still good. God, your word is still true. And God, you're still worthy of my praise. Amen? Take up your shield of faith. I want to close by sharing a story of a, of a man that I personally know, a friend of mine. And the arrows just would not stop coming. There was that day when he was betrayed by one of his closest friends just to benefit himself. And if that didn't hurt enough, the arrows kept coming because then he was arrested. A friend is arrested and then all his inner circle, his closest friends, all abandon him and desert him out of fear for their own lives. And the arrows kept coming because after everyone left him, he's standing there and they, they started hitting him in the head with closed fists and open slaps. 
And if that didn't hurt enough, they strip him. And they start whipping him on the back, ripping open his flesh, exposing his insides. And if that weren't bad enough, the arrows kept coming. And they start now clothing him over those open wounds. I don't know if it was raggedy cloths or what, but they clothe him. How badly must that sting on open flesh? And if that didn't sting enough, they start mocking him, calling him king, oh king, save yourself, you're the mighty king. And they crown him with a crown of many thorns. And if that weren't bad enough, the arrows kept coming, and now they hammer him. They hammer him to a wooden cross, and they lift him up to be on display naked and bleeding for all to see. Kind of like a Picasso painting. To the unknowing, a distorted picture that seems worthless, only to find later its endless worth. And for any of us who would have been there on that day, must have thought, how in the world can you still put your faith in a heavenly Father and call Him good? How could you still trust in a good God? Well, His name is Jesus. And He believed and He trusted in the goodness of His Father. And that faith allowed Him to endure the fiery darts, which allowed Him then to not just endure the pain, but to enter the throne room and enjoy his victory. And that faith that allowed him to endure, he gives to you. He gives to to me. And so Hebrews 12, 2 tells us, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of of God. He gives us the faith that gave him the victory. The armor of God that he gives is the armor of God that he wears. The very armor that gives him ultimate and final victory is the armor he provides for you and for me. And so shall we experience if we would just put on the armor of God. Amen? Amen. Let's put it on. I want to move from this message into a time of worship and reflection. We're going to go into communion now. And so when you came in, you should have gotten a cup with a wafer on top. And at this time, we're going to just remember the Lord's Supper. And maybe you're at home. I, I hope that by now you've been able to get some bread and maybe some juice. But we want to do this together as, as one body. And as you get that ready, you know what's crazy to me? What's crazy is that when the barrage of attacks, these flaming arrows were coming at Jesus, before it all happened, you know what Jesus was found doing? He was having Thanksgiving dinner. It's like the Last Supper, and he's giving thanks, knowing that all these arrows were about to come. He knew it. He's God. And yet he's giving thanks not for the circumstances, but in the circumstances, because he knows what's going to come out of these circumstances, that death would be defeated, that the penalty would be paid for, 
that Satan would be silenced. He knew what was coming, so with joy, he endured the cross. And so in faith, as we take of this communion, we give thanks. We give thanks. Whatever circumstance you're in, not for the circumstance, but in the circumstance, we give thanks because we know we have victory in Christ. So whatever sin you've committed, give thanks that that penalty has been paid for. Whatever temptation comes your way, give thanks because Christ identifies. He's been tempted, yet was without sin. He provides a way out. Whatever attack may come, today or tomorrow, give thanks. Because by Christ's death and his resurrection, he proves that victory belongs to the Lord. And so with, with your elements in hand, in Matthew 26, 26 and 27, Jesus said at that last supper, at that Thanksgiving dinner, he said, while they were eating, he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. And we do this to remember his death and resurrection. I want to pray for it now and then give you a moment just to reflect, to offer your hearts to the Lord. This is for anybody who's a follower of Christ. If you believe that he died and shed his blood for you, then partake in this. And if you don't believe it yet, just go ahead and let it pass and, and just sit quietly. But let's worship. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you so much for just an opportunity to remember and to give thanks that your body was broken when it was beaten and hung on that cross and that your blood was shed to wash away our sins, ironically, to, to make us clean, to make us white as snow. And we thank you so much that your life didn't end on the cross nor in the grave, but you rose from the grave and you're now sitting in victory at the right hand of the throne of God. We remember you. We know you're coming back for us. Help us to also enjoy your victory. So thank you, God. We remember your sacrifice. We worship you with all our hearts. And this is the reason why we eat and drink. And this is why we sing all for the glory of God. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.